Hey folks, Michael here. Real quick before the episode starts, I wanted to give everyone a heads up that we had some technical difficulties recording this episode, but we didn't want to spare you from this wonderful conversation with an insightful guest about a bizarre song. So please excuse the, what I'll call, hiccups here and there during the episode. We appreciate your patience, and here's the first episode of 2022. Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring a song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Boom. All right. We are we are going. I feel like we're never recording unless you say boom, Ted. Well, for me, it's like, it's like the clap thing, you know? Although, the clap thing is supposed to happen when we all hit record, I say boom, like four seconds after, so. We tried the clap thing, and it didn't really work. Welcome to You Wanted a Hit. We have a very special guest for everybody. I think everybody is going to be thrilled that she's here, mostly because anytime I hang out with this person, we get into deep musical conversation and go on to tons of tangents and figure out that we have all these crazy connections and, you know, everything. One of those people that you meet and you're like, wow, everything is interconnected. So perfect for this show, I think. Uh, it is my friend. Hillary Saunders, welcome to the show, Hillary, and uh, meet Theo. Thank you, friend. <laughs> nice to meet you, friend. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the podcast. We're happy to I have am you. honored and, to be honest, a bit nervous because I like to go into things prepared. And I. Well, I saw you had a beer, so you're prepared. You're prepared for whatever. Oh, not just, any, not just beer. any beer. It is a Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest beer. I like it. I Hillary like it. I did as much preparing as I possibly could without knowing what song we're going to talk about. <laughs> oh, amazing. So she came prepared with a Sierra Nevada, which is from our lovely beer partner who hooks us up with beer to help us uh, navigate the wild world of unlikely hits. And I'm currently drinking one of their beers as well. The Big Hazy IPA, which I like to start episodes with. Um, so it's great that you're here, Hillary, and that we're all consuming this wonderful beer together because also Hillary, when we hang out, we usually have a couple beers before we talk about music. <laughs> um, but yeah, Hillary is the, um, would I say managing editor? You can say managing editor, depending on our audience. I sometimes say head bitch in charge, no depression, <laughs> which is yeah. the, your leading source for Roots Music. Uh, today, it comprises a quarterly print journal, which is ad-free and highlights long-form reported journalism, as well as a daily updated website. Old school uh, music fans will, of course, know that No Depression started in 1995 as a bi-monthly, glossy-covered music magazine. And in 2015, we uh, became part of the not-for-profit 501c3 Fresh Grass Foundation. So today we comprise independent journalism. And I'm very proud of that. 
Hell yeah. I have, uh, multiple, I always have multiple issues of no depression on my coffee table. Uh, one to read too, cause they're beautiful. It's not just a magazine. Like it's, it's a book. It is fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's super cool. The art inside of it is always incredible. Um, and there's always, I don't know, I always read through it and I'm like, oh my God, this person wrote a column. Like there's really cool people writing about, um, I don't know, kind of, I feel like it's a lot of different perspectives on music. Hillary's also a great Twitter follow. So I also recommend that. Thank you. I'm not <laughs> sure I agree with that one, but. Okay, fine. I'll cut that part out, Hillary. <laughs> I have something really special for y'all. And it was funny because I, I, I told Hillary that we want her on the podcast and she asked if there's any preparation she could do. And I said, no, just bring yourself and your wonderful personality and musical mind. And we can discuss the song that I'm not going to tell you about beforehand because that's a format of the podcast. Um, and then she asked me or said she was afraid it would be something that she didn't know. And I said, well, that would be even more fun, I think, because we haven't we've never run into that. But. I find it highly unlikely that you don't know this song, but if you don't know this song, I want to know all about how you avoided this. Parts song. of my musical knowledge are are very uh, very deep, and parts are just completely lacking. That's how I feel. Yeah, but it's my job, dude. Like, the, true. This that's is what I'm true. supposed to do, like, as a passion and as capitalism. <laughs> I definitely know some people who are completely music encyclopedias and it's really hard to stump them or come up with something they're unfamiliar with. If we're talking about Western popular music, like I kind of feel like the folks that are super encyclopedias don't know some of the dumb. I am the anti-poptimist. <laughs> okay. Just let me have it. What, what are we talking about? Okay. The anticipation on this one. This is Gautier, oh, is that right? It is Gautier. And Kimbra. Okay. This song was fucking massive for like six weeks. Yeah. Fucking massive. This is a song. Wait, Hillary, do you know this song? I do know it. Here's my... We'll hit the chorus. The chorus, everyone knows. Everyone knows the chorus. All right, yeah, let's hit the chorus. It does, it does take, it takes a bit to get out of the chorus. Video dancing is, is my Makes it right unlikely, now. I think. Tom Petty song, we already hit two choruses by now. <laughs> this is why Tom Petty is the goat. Whatever right? this shit. Sorry, you should edit that out. You can say whatever you want about this song. Chris. I mean, I've covered songs I hate on this show. I have so many more better stories about the Bloodhound Gang because I listened to that episode <laughs> than I do about this. We, we can do a throwback. And for the mailbag, we'll, we'll dig into that. I think I really liked this song when it first came out. 
It's now a song that I've heard far too many times, but I think in the beginning, I really, really enjoyed this one. I don't remember. I'll, I'll get into a little bit of, of my memory of the song, but I think I liked it at first, but then it just was played so much that I don't remember. Like, I feel like the song itself blocked out all of my memories of the song. That's fair. It's like Hozier. It's like just this floating ent- entity that just exists. Wait, is that, that not that exists. same song? <laughs> what song it's very similar oh yeah yeah it's like the hosier song that like started spotify the first time you heard it you were like yo this is a fucking hit and then it became a hit and you were like oh my god i cannot hear the but song also again. is the hosier song the gautier song uh the vocals do sound kind am of i wrong uh very like shouty chorus they are very similar very similar this song is somebody that i used to know by Gautier uh, featuring Kimbra. I do need to preface that before we get into this, um, I'll make a bunch of references, but there is an oral history that uh, was published this July in Stereo Gum, which we reference all the time because Stereo Gum fucking rules. Um, Larry Fitzmaurice uh, wrote an oral history about this song for the 10-year anniversary of it. And it's excellent. So if you want more background on this, and I'll, I'll use a bunch of quotations from it, definitely read it. It's great. I would simply I recommend reading out. everything that he writes, in fact. That too. We've, we referenced him before, too. He wrote something else we were talking about, Ted. I forget what it was. Yeah, I do it was one of your episodes. But yeah, all of his stuff is great. And pretty much everything on Stereo Gum is I think is we too, might have so. referenced him during the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. It was another throwback article. I think you're right. I think he did write something about uh, Swing Revival. (laughs) Well, uh, this song um, is written by, uh, I believe it's Wooter Wally DeBacher. I really thought you were going to say Wu-Tang Clan. I was like, whoa, curveball. Here we go. (laughs) came out of nowhere. (laughs) This song was written by Ghostface Killer and ODB. (laughs) But he goes by Wally, but he is Gautier. So Wouter DeBacher goes by Wally. He is Gautier. Uh, he was born in Belgium. And now Gautier makes sense. At first I was like, why would you choose that name? It's hard to pronounce. But turns out that Wouter, <laughs> whatever the hell. For pop stars, yeah. Uh, he was born in Belgium, but he immigrated to Australia when he was two. His mother nicknamed, nicknamed him Gautier based on Gaultier the French equivalent of his Dutch name, Wouter. His parents actually chose to use the English equivalent of his name, Walter, when enrolling him in school. I'm sure we all know because kids are so mean. So speaking <laughs> of kids are mean, here's my like weird musical knowledge that doesn't have to do with things you would hear on the radio. Um, did you listen to the new Dave Haas record? Um, I haven't listened to it, <laughs> okay, actually, a, but I've, I've seen amazing. it around a lot. It's amazing. There's a song called Gary on it which made me think of your dog and the whole purpose of that song is basically an apology for being a bully as a kid because kids are mean to a guy named gary a kid named gary oh my god that's amazing right in and the fields. Theo, i feel like i feel like you'd be a dave haas guy that seems like your lane i love dave haas i have not heard yeah. the new album yet though well, there you i'm go. also now wondering if gary has responded uh, has he heard this song? Because I'd be intrigued if Gary was like, oh, cool, you, you are now a famous artist and uh, 
Thanks for the song. I'm, I'm working at Best Buy. So as a kid, uh, Wally was obsessed with Depeche Mode. I was too. And played keys and drums. And he had a high school band called Downstairs. S-T-A-R-E-S. Which I kind of like. Like for a high school band? It's kind of a cool yeah, name. Yeah, not bad. No, yeah. my high school band uh, was called Vertigo. And it was not oh. after the U2 song. Oh, see, I was going with the Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yeah, I was going to say, is it after the... Did somebody in the band have no, Vertigo? No, just thought it sounded cool. I don't think that's a bad name. It's a cool word. It's yeah. not great either. Well, we'll talk about my high school band's name. And Filing that one away. So Wally, uh, he was in this high school band called Downstairs. And in fact, one of the members from Downstairs still plays in Gautier's live band, which is cool. Very cool. He's a loyal guy. Yeah. Wally attended the University of Melbourne where he lived in a house with several other musicians, which became a bit of a party pad and constant hangout that people affectionately, I guess, called the frat house. Though I don't think it was a frat house at all, which is confusing. But I was wondering if it was like an Australian, like, I don't know if there are fraternities there or if they're just seen in house. That's what I was thinking. Like, maybe they're like, oh, it's a party house. We're at college. It's a frat. I don't know. Um, but they called it the frat house. Meanwhile, 2,500 miles away across the Tasman Sea in Hamilton, New Zealand, 10-year-old Kimbra Lee Johnson was singing, playing guitar, and writing her own songs at 10. Impressive. She started making her own music videos, and she also started singing the New Zealand National Anthem at major sporting events and sang in the jazz choir in high school, which then led her to competing in the famous Rock Quest. Have you ever heard of the Rock Quest in New Zealand? No, but I'm into it. I hadn't either. It's now called the Smoke Free Rock Quest because there's some sort of uh, uh, like nonprofit sponsor now. Uh, Annual cool. music competition for high school bands throughout New Zealand. It's like a national battle of bands. Like it'd be like if every high school in America participated in the same battle of bands, and then there's like a giant championship that everyone in the country is like tuned into. To be fair. If there was that in the 90s in America, it would have probably been sponsored by Philip Morris. Yeah. So maybe that's why <laughs> Smoke Free came in and was like, we're taking this over. This so is only reinforcing my desire, especially since the pandemic, to move to New Zealand. Like, how do I get New Zealand citizenship? Well, there's a, I guess if you reunited Vertigo and then got him part of this competition. Entered the Smoke Free Rock Quest. 21, it'd be like 21 Jump Street. You're like undercover in the high school, but just to play in Rock Quest. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, exactly. We can make a movie out of this. Funny story. I found at my parents' house my junior high school prom dress and for shits and giggles, put it on and that motherfucker still fit. Hell yeah. This would be a scene in Cheers the movie. That. This is meant to happen. Rock Quest 2022. Here we come. We're already, I'm just going to keep like, track like tallying of things that we need to edit out of this <laughs> include actually if you include my initial reaction to oh when you first started playing this song we're up to three <laughs> it's kind of like the eurovision song competition but with high school kids and they can play like whatever kind of music and in fact the the nationals uh attracts twenty four thousand people <laughs> to it to watch these high school bands it's really cool that's gonna be like, like about half the citizens of new zealand right well i was thinking that like twenty four thousand people in new zealand is a lot of that's people a lot of people 
several notable Kiwi artists have gotten their start in the competition, including The Naked and Famous, Lady Hawk, Kids of 88, and numerous other artists that are mostly popular in New Zealand and Australia, who I'm not super familiar with. Numerous other artists that you've never heard of. (laughs) But those three I'd heard of, so I included them. Kimbra competed in the competition three times in high school. And she didn't win, but it led to her appearing on the long-running children's TV show, What Now? And then she came to the attention of Independiente Records president Mark Richardson, who had worked with the likes of Jamiroquai, Travis, Gomez, Paul Weller, and more. And he signed her to his new management company and his new label in Melbourne. And Kimbra moved there, arrived her high school to pursue her career. In 2010, she released her first single, Settle Down, then her debut album, Vows and collaborations with the buzzy Australian bloghouse band, Miami Horror, and started building some hype online. In part, thanks to celebrity gossip blogger Perez Hilton, who wrote a lot about her on his site. Does anyone else feel like they just stepped into the DeLorean into 2010? I was just about to say, for any of our like <laughs> listeners who uh, I just missed that, that time period, you like really cemented us there. Bloghouse, Perez Hilton. Wow. So while Kimber is kicking off her music career as a teenager, our man Wally is over in Australia recording demos and burning them on CDRs with hand-drawn art and dropping them off at radio stations using primarily samples layered with his own vocals and a little bit of instrumentation. He, he ended up getting a little play on Triple J, which is like the equivalent of BBC Radio 6 in Australia. It's like the hip public music station. I know Triple J. Triple J, my one Australian friend, tells me that they are like great connoisseurs of new music and uh there's always like a good year-end list oh yeah it's a solid list to check out uh and and timely here we are at the end of the year they also do great in studio things sort of like kate yeah uh well triple j got some fans over here in america he got a little play on there but at the same time uh he started a post-punk band called the basics good band name as well who are still around and still still play he said that they were gigging around melbourne a lot of the time, and it wasn't going really well. And I really enjoyed this quotation from him. Uh, while he says, for one of our first gigs, we were on stage upstairs in a little club, and there was a bartender upstairs and a bartender downstairs, and nobody else was there. <laughs> At one point, the bartender upsta- upstairs says, I'm so sorry, guys. I got to go clean some things downstairs. And we were literally <laughs> left by ourselves playing on stage. <laughs> uh, Why? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Fine. It's fine. It's fine. Live your truth. <laughs> so while he continued to play and tour with the basics, his music as Gautier was drawing more and more attention. He kept recording his solo tracks, and while he was working at a local library, he released the album Like Drawing Blood. The story kind of runs parallel to Kimbra's as Danny Rogers, who was managing the Australian indie rock sensations The Tipper Trap. Oh, do I? That was a great band. Sweet Disposition song that was in all the commercials. They were yeah. like the, uh, the festival band du jour of those couple of years. They might have been at that La Palooza. Oh, yeah. I think that was like their last what run of playing. Uh, 2013. But they, that song was big Not in like good. 09. I think. They had a couple big ones. All right, fine. Sorry, Temper Trap. But their manager heard the record uh, and reached out to Wally via email. And they started working together. And the album reached heavy rotation on Triple J and was nominated for an ARIA award, which is like the Australian Grammys. And Gautier won Best Male Artist at the awards. And the big hit from the album was the song Learn a Little Given and Lovin', which is one word, 
which I didn't think I knew. And then I listened to it and I realized that I'd heard it on like some of the music blogs of the era, specifically the Passion Pit remix, I think was pretty popular. I know you're going to like, you're going to do all your like fancy editing and splices then, but for for the hot second, can can I listen to the song? Yeah. You should play it for the class. Very fun. Yeah, it's cool fun. Y'all are bopping. I'm sitting here being skeptical, but that's fine. <laughs> I've never heard this. Well, check out the passion for remix. It's a lot of fun. I feel like Bruno Mars could cover that, and it would Definitely. be fun. That sounds like that sounds like uh, Silk Sonic. Kind hey, of. that's a Silk yeah. Sonic song. Uh, well, now Gautier is going to yeah. get sued. So, uh, <laughs> or become a more millionaire because they're going to do it. Thanks to us. Uh, I prefer that interpretation. By the way, like drawing blood is like an, a Radiohead album name. It does sound like a Radiohead <laughs> album. Where, where are you at? Yeah, it wasn't even released in the U.S. until after somebody that I used to know came out here, uh, despite its success in Australia. Back in 2011, Kimbra's song "Cameo Lover." was a finalist in the 2011 Vanda and Young songwriting competition. Yo, she loves the competition. Do you know who Vanda and Young are? Uh, no. They are a famed Australian songwriting and production duo, Harry Vanda and George Young. They were in the band The Easy Beats. George is the older no. brother of Malcolm and Angus Young of ACDC. Oh. Now, okay, now it's connected. And he produced Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap. Fantastic. Uh, and do you know the Dire Straits song, Sultans of Swing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they talk about Guitar George and Harry. They're talking about these guys. Wow. In the song. That's a fun fact. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it's a prestigious songwriting competition down under. And Kimbra's song won the competition ahead of a song in third place called Somebody That I Used to Know by Gautier. Ooh, here we go. <laughs> and this okay. was the first time that Wally have become familiar with Kimbra. That makes sense. By the way, when you say Wally, I cannot not think about Wally. It's true. <laughs> the cute little robot from Pixar films. Uh, different than that and also different than Wally. We're talking about yeah, yeah, different guy here. <laughs> so Wally had been working on his follow-up to Like Drawing Blood, which he titled Making Mirrors. You'd probably recognize the album art. Again, another very Radiohead-esque yeah what's cool about the album art is that it was a painting that his father had painted in the 80s and he didn't even know about it till he was going through his dad's old bills and newspapers and just found this picture that his dad painted and made it his album cover cool wally made five songs and he started playing them for all kinds of people and nobody liked them so he scrapped them went back and wrote five more songs and specifically he worked on somebody that i used to know for like six months in his parents barn he called it a, a very gradual process. He went to his local thrift shop uh, in Melbourne and he rifled through a bunch of records and he picked out an album uh, just because of the, the cover. And it was Luis Bonfa plays great songs. And he said, well, we'll see about that. And then he listened to it and it was amazing. And then he realized that Luis Bonfa is like one of the premier Brazilian guitarists. And he was like, 
oh, like this guy's legit. <laughs> so he uh, he fell in love with this song, and I'm gonna play it for you. Mm. I mean, yeah. So he sampled the guitar and started singing and playing some other instruments over it. Wait, so is, is that like a full credit sample? Yeah, it's, a, oh, it's wow. a sample. Yeah. It also features an interpolation of something that is uh, public domain, a oh. little ditty called Baba Black Sheep. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the little xylophone part. <laughs> it's from Baba Black Sheep. Uh, I think both Hillary and I's expressions were exactly the same. Like, the folk? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I gotta hear this now. Baba Black Sheep, have you any more? Sorry, it's pretty similar. I would argue it's melodically different enough. It's, it's the, the xylophone. It's the dun, 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 dun. Okay. I heard it just now, but... I I think maybe it's public domain, so like he didn't really have to. I think he just was inspired by it, and he claims it was an you know a, an interpolation. I don't think I ever knew the word interpolation. By the way, you said it earlier, and I was like, hmm, interesting. Like whenever you're like playing a song, and you insert the lyrics of another song into it, oh, the melody of another song into it, but you're not sampling it because you're applying it. Hold up, that's what Cisco should have said when he got sued by Ricky Martin. Leaving the Vita Loca. So he did. That was an interpolation. That's exactly what that was. Because uh, it, that song was not in the public domain. He had to pay. Oh, you still got to pay. Okay. He's building the song piece by piece. Coming back every few weeks to evaluate it. And just wasn't getting there. He would add loops, percussion, flute sounds, chord progressions, key changes, octave changes, instrumental bridges, tempo changes. He's basically throwing the kitchen sink at this thing. And then he realized this song should be a duet. And that's what he'd been looking for all along. He said that he thought the song was boring because it was just the perspective of the guy in the relationship because it's a breakup song. And he said that the listener needed to hear from his former partner and hear her perspective. He started searching for vocalists to be in the song. And supposedly, a I've read this in several pieces, a high-profile vocalist from Australia had been tapped and then she canceled at the last minute. And I can't figure out who it is. I would love to know. I wonder if it's like Kylie Minogue or something. Uh, and I kind of respect him for never saying who it was that canceled. Wally did ask his girlfriend at the time, Tosh Parker, uh, who's also a recording artist, sing the part. So they gave it a shot and they decided they were too happy in their relationship to sing the song about the demise of love. And it didn't seem authentic. So they scrapped it. And that's when Kimbra, who had been picking up some steam online and touring and collaborating with Aussie bands, was suggested by the song's mixer, Francois Tetas who had been working with Wally for years since they were in college. What's funny is that he knew Kembra because she hired him after she heard a Gautier song, Hearts a Mess, fell in love with him, and looked up who mixed it and hired this guy. Oh, wow. Uh, That's and That's my musicianship. Another fun fact, Hearts a Mess, the song, uh, the Gautier song, is in Boz Lerman's oh, Great Past. I should have known that. Uh, and eventually, we will cover that song. But Mike said that it's his song to cover. So I am waiting patiently <laughs> for sunscreen. Wally uh, also remembered Kimbra from the songwriting competition that they were both in a little bit before that, where he entered the unfinished version of this song that wasn't yet a duet. And Kimbra says, around the time Gautier had asked me to be part of the song, 
I was at the end of the album process and I just signed with Warner Brothers, which was great. I figured I could put music out around the time of the song and continue to grow my fan base. They recorded her vocals in her bedroom in Melbourne because that's where she'd been recording her album. And they recorded it quietly and wanted it to sound as if it was a real conversation. I like that. Wally says of the collaboration that he'd seen people respond to the song as if you need to take a side with mine or Kimbra's in the lyrical perspectives of the verses, which is interesting. There's a lot of different shades of gray. You could take some of the things Kimbra and I sing in the song in a bunch of different ways, but it's unclear. And that's always the reality between two people or when outsiders have perspective on a couple's relationship. It's always so complex. Finding a way to tell a story that leaves things open to interpretation is always more interesting. Uh, so yeah, the, the song was released in Australia on July 5th, 2011 on 11 Music as the second single from the album. As I mentioned, Gautier and Kembra both had some success in their native Oceania, but when the song was released, the music video was released the same day. Do either of you remember this music video? I think one of the... There are many reasons why I don't have much to say about this song, <laughs> but I think one of them is because I was living abroad at the time. Um, I was finishing my master's degree in Northern England, and so my music consumption was decidedly un-American um, mm-hmm. at the time, and mm. and I also have never been a big radio person, and so you know I was like watching Jules Holland like regularly hillary this hit number one in england i mean yeah but also (laughs) i mean yeah but ask me about pretty much any song that hit number one after i don't know 1976 and i will probably give you this same sort of blank stared expression of like yeah i know it probably and that's why we're all here i'm so glad I believe about. it is. I it, I believe it is time to um, highlight your sponsor. Um, oh yeah, we need to highlight because Nevada. I need a refill. A re-up. <laughs> so that I can, oh, you know, already got it. Maintain my my witty uh, anecdotes. Hold up, hold up. We, we love the sound. The sound of a can snack. Oh. Hear it. Ah. Mm. The music video is very iconic for a lot of reasons. And I am going to send you all the link and we're going to watch it together. Yeah, I remember him being like naked. Oh, now I hear Baba Black Sheep. (laughs) His mouth? We're not objectifying people because, duh, we're smarter than that. But his mouth is very long. Yeah, it definitely is. I'm not objectifying people, but he's very attractive. (laughs) I'm glad you feel that way, Theo. (laughs) I think he has very, like, robotic mouth. Like a Westworld kind of mouth. Do you think he looks like a robot from Westworld? Okay, actually... This does kind of now have a weird Westworld vibe to me. It's very mechanic in his motions, at least in the video. 
I think it's so fascinating that this video got so popular when it starts like this. It's kind of got like aha vibes of the drawing, so. It kind of does. Uh, but like, it's not the Angelo. Like, why are we still tuning in? <laughs> it is very Angelo. It's kind of weird. Like, but the Angelo like looks like the Angelo, and that song's amazing. So you're like, okay, I'm, I gotta keep watching. Like. Definitely not watch this entire video from front to back. Yeah, I don't actually think I did ever either. I don't know if I ever did either. I just remember seeing it constantly, like people sharing it and it was on websites and stuff. Um, and then a lot of references to it that we'll get into. It feels very... Like it, I don't know, it's like early 2000s esque. It has like a like a garden state feel to it. Yeah, like could have been an OK Go video. Yeah, it could not have been an OK Go video. Okay, that I have that I can that I can comment on. Well, those videos are amazing, but I mean it was at the time we're doing creative things like art and props and like all these things. I feel like OK Go kind of kicked that off in that. Totally. Time. But like is totally. this cool with the mirror? Like it's a cool it's video. It's cool when Kimbra comes Once you in. get here. But it's like, how do people get this far? Actually, I don't even think I've ever made it all the way through the song to hear Kimber's verses. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, even outside the video. It's yeah. like, I got the hook. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is fascinating. I feel like it's a song that everyone can connect to at the end of the day. We've all been in that situation. There aren't that many duet breakup songs that are big. There's a lot of duet love song what about like every fleetwood mac song so it's funny you say that because larry fitzmaurice in stereo gum said uh yeah he said it's the millennial generation's version of fleetwood mac's dreams oh that oh like <laughs> oh it's would you really put those it's, on it's, the same quality it's not level? it's not nearly it's not nearly as good as dreams but I think he meant because it's so pervasive and because of the subject matter. I don't think it was musically he was saying. Then okay, I yeah. mean okay, because I agree with you, Hillary. I I don't think it's anywhere near that song. I was actually thinking about that Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks song. So this video uh, is a big reason for why the song is so huge. It made the rounds on all the indie blogs and across social media. Yeah, wait, but hold up, is it? Yeah, I, this song, this song was huge. I vaguely remember the video, but this was this like all over TRL. No internet. This is one of the first internet music videos. YouTube only started in like oh eight, oh nine. Oh, fair. Okay. So the video leaked through a site called Take Forty, which is an Australian website. It was supposedly an accident, but it was kind of a big deal because people were anticipating in Australia Gautier's next thing. Cause he had won these awards and people knew who he was. Um, but it was also back when you could share YouTube videos on Facebook, which you can't really do anymore. Cause Facebook has its own video, you know, platform. Like now when you post a YouTube link on there, like it's, it looks like shit. They bury it in the algorithm on purpose so that their videos come up first. But I, I remember Facebook for a while, people were just sharing YouTube videos and this was one of the most shared links on there of all time. Wow. So uh, what's funny is that Wally didn't actually like being in his own videos. 
but he's in this naked. Yeah, so he chose to be naked. Right. And he said he was actually very uncomfortable with it. But the director, Natasha Pincus, uh, who had previously been a lawyer and a scientist before a music video director, fun to him, uh, she said she had to do some convincing because this is her concept. Wally funded the video himself. And Natasha said the concept was that they were trapped in a painting, cloaking their togetherness, and we'd witness the construction and destruction of that throughout the narrative of the video. Apparently, Kimbra got pretty tired during the long shoot because she was standing the whole time in boots, even though the body paint artist specifically told her to wear sneakers. Mm. (laughs) And Wally said it was two very long days of shooting with quite a small amount of sleep in between. I did go through the McDonald's drive-thru at the end of the second night in a beaten-up Mazda van with full face paint and getting coffee. (laughs) The teenager at the window didn't bat an eyelid. (laughs) It's like the most simple video we've covered on this entire podcast. And they're acting like it was like a a war shot. Like, two days, very little sleep, couldn't even eat, man. (laughs) The last video, we had Rammstein blowing shit up. And lighting themselves on fire yeah <laughs> i mean i just finished watching the video it's fine yeah it's it's like it's weird going back and looking at it and wondering why it was so iconic but maybe there's been stuff that's been derivative since then like i was trying to wrap my head around it like i i don't really maybe it was just the song the director natasha pincus said when she finished the video she thought what have i done Maybe this isn't good. And she sent it to a friend of hers in Norway, who she said is brutally honest. And a few hours later, a few hours later, he called her back and said, holy crap, what have you done? This is a once in a generation thing. Well, that guy fucking knew. Which seems like hyperbole, but it was kind of right. I don't know. It's so weird. I find it so fascinating. Yeah. One billion, billion, more than yeah, close to like two billion. Close to two billion streams. On, yeah, on YouTube. Uh, so after the video came out, Wally said that people would walk up to him in the street screaming, you didn't have to cut me off in his face. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, that's a real aspect of pop where a cadence and a song can stand in for someone's entire perspective of you. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a thing in our industry. After his success in Australia and a little bit beyond, Universal Music picked up the album and they released it in January 2012 in the United States. And they had planned from the beginning to work the song simultaneously to alternative rock radio and AAA radio. They started slowly, but the response was instantaneous. If a developing artist gets into heavy rotation, which is already unlikely, it usually takes about four months to work the song from the first time they sent it to radio to the time that it reaches heavy rotation. Do you think that's still accurate almost 10 years later? I was thinking about this when I was taking these notes, and I feel like things are so splintered now that every artist now that reaches, if they do reach those levels of radio, have such a different story. It's like, oh, like we got popular from touring. We were popular from this video. We have been growing this for a really long time, and finally we have a radio team. Like, yeah, like who knows? I, I think that this is definitely a little dated, but it was also indicative of what was to come. But to your point, Hillary, I feel like in the 90s and the 2000s, if a major label looked at a song and said, we are going to put half a million to a million dollars behind this, it's going to happen. And we know the trajectory. And that's just not true anymore. Like, It's not guaranteed anymore, at least. 
But I would say in the 90s, early 2000s, it, it definitely was. At this time, you were probably getting away from that. But because social media was really taking off to, to be the, the launch point for songs. But major labels, I mean, the last fucking time I worked with a major label, that was still their mindset. So, I, yeah, I think it's still, it's the go-to plan, but it's not guaranteed to work anymore. But they're still going to throw that at the wall, see what happens. There's way less of a formula. Yeah. My guess was that a lot of radio programmers had seen the video or already heard about the song by the time it was actually serviced to them. So they had to play it based on the buzz or perhaps they were waiting for their chance to play it because a lot of the commercial stations can't just play whatever they want. They have It has to go through the system. I, I couldn't tell where exactly it came from where these folks heard this song and were like, gotta play it. I, I can't imagine that they just heard it at commercial stations and were like, we're in. Like, so do either of you remember like the first time you heard this song or or like when you heard this song and it really hit you like there are certain songs in my life that i can pinpoint you know a, a who what when where why how and also like all of my senses of like where i was what i was looking at what you know this the sense in the area do, yeah can you do yeah. that for this song i can't but i can tell you when i didn't hear it and what I mean by that is uh, early 2010s, I was doing a lot of DJing of dance music. So I was I was electronic music. So I was all over the blogs and like hype machine, like looking for EDM and house and like remixes of stuff and trip hop and all these different things. And I would always see this song pop up. It was like at the top of hype machine forever. And I would click play and be like, oh, did I forget about this? No, it's just like this like kind of folky tune. Like, why is this on here? Like, it was on a lot of those sites that that posted a lot of that music and like indie rock sites. And um, But it was also at the time where a lot of the Mumford & Sons, Lumineers, that stuff was happening. So, and that was starting to infiltrate that, that sort of scene. That's what I was going to say. Of the time, it, it kind of made sense. But I feel like the... The unique nature of how the song is constructed, in an odd way, captivated a lot of people. It was like mm-hmm. such a slow entryway, and it, it it almost like hooks you immediately, and you're you're like not like a pop hook, but like in almost like a you're intrigued hook, where it's like where's the song going? And then when it gets going late in the song, it kind of takes off immediately, and it ends on a high note. It just it feels very. I don't know. It had a great build to it, but the build was in an awkward place. And I, I don't remember the first time I heard the song, but I do remember loving the song early on just because it was cool. It was different. And there was something about it that was intoxicating. I do remember that. And then I remember it being played way too much and I fucking hated it after a while. But Oh, we'll get we'll get to that. <laughs> and I, I'm 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 refining this description so that it's, you know, a little bit snappier. But this is the type of song that I Shazam when it is too late at night to take the train home in New York City (laughs) as a single woman. And so I call a lift and Mm -hmm. pop music radio is playing about two notches too loudly in the lift, despite whatever has been consumed that evening. And there is some song with a catchy hook 
that is playing that I'm like, I'm a professional. <laughs> I work in music. I should probably know what this is. And then exactly. I Shazam the song and I make a note of like, ah, yes, I have seen that artist and exactly. that song title. And then I put it away and sit in silence and sadness for the rest of my ride back to Queens or at some points deep Brooklyn of like, this is not good. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. It is a song that you hear, when, especially when you're drunk, that you're like, you want to Shazam it. You're intrigued. You're interested. But you're also like, I don't know if I hate the song or if I enjoy the song, but I have to know what it is. It's it's interesting because, Hillary, you're hearing, especially nowadays, because pop radio is just its own genre, but it's it's no longer a survey of popular music. So it's mostly one sound for the most part. So you hear something that's a little different, a little intriguing, and you're like, oh, I'll check out what this is. Like, I think. That. It's not though. It's 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 not it's not this is intriguing. It's like what is this? <laughs> like and and why is that this? That makes sense. That makes sense. Like I'm a journalist. I I have to know these things. Like it knowledge right. I you know, I bow to truth. Capital T. <laughs> like what is this? I still agree. Like I we'll get into it in a in a little bit but like i still can't figure out why this song got as big as it did i could see it being popular in certain circles and like cool popular online people who are into music that sounds like this think it's cool but like the fact that it was up against what it was up against on pop radio i'm just like what the fuck happened here all right but how about how about what if it touched a uh, a nostalgic juvenile nerve that we didn't even know existed, and all of us were we like were fucking juvenile. Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> Baba Black Sheep, no Baba Black Sheep. We heard that little part, and we were like, it, it subconsciously, we we're like the nursery rhyme in us was like, yes, I must have my blankie and this new. This Gautier is like song. a sci-fi hypnotism thing. I'm going, I'm going Freudian with this this song here. I have other theories, but not about you, just about music and and <laughs> therapy. <laughs> This song, three months after they worked it, they started working it to U.S. radio. It was the number one song in the country. We were talking early 2012. Yes. Yes. Early 2012. There's an interview in NPR uh, with the U.S. radio promoter for the song, Trina Tombrink. And she says, this is an isolated incident. It really was special. It's a phenomenon. It's one of those things that if you've been doing it for a long time, You see it pretty early on, and you sense that it is just going to be that. However, Kimbra, who seems awesome, by the way, I've really enjoyed reading all of her interviews, um, and her music's really cool, says, a lot of label people have said, oh, I knew it'd be a hit. And I just roll my eyes and scoff, because there's no way they could have (laughs) known. The way Wally presented it, it seemed more like a track six type of song. It wasn't the type of song he was known for. Wow. <laughs> oh, I love it. She's like, these suits are full of shit. Well, that's the thing. Every time, every time like a manager or someone from a label gives a comment about a hit song, they're like, I knew it's going to be a hit from day one. It's like, this is all in yeah. retrospect. You had no fucking clue. You never have an idea. Good point, though. I started, I'm a little bit behind. I started watching the Beatles get back. I haven't seen, I haven't it, seen yet. it yet. My dudes. Come on. I don't know. I just moved. I haven't I watched shit. I need to. I know. Right. So I already <laughs> mentioned that I was living abroad 
when this song came out. It was because mm-hmm. I was getting my master's degree in music business in Liverpool in the hometown of the Beatles. Go Reds. Liverpool won today. I have my my jersey over there, but that's ah, a different excellent. story for a different time. If you haven't started watching Get Back yet, first of mm-hmm. all, you should if you love the Beatles, if you love music, if you want to just sort of be a fly on the wall for eight hours worth of band practice, which admittedly not everyone wants to do, and that's fine. I don't hold that against you. For the Beatles, I will. It's yeah. the Beatles. Yeah. You there's there are a few scenes. So I've only watched the first episode uh, or the first part of the trilogy. You see Paul on his, you know, very iconic like viola bass, uh, thumping along to get back. Um, mm-hmm. and it's and he's sort of scatting words, he's making up lyrics, he's trying to piece it together, and you know, commotion is just happening around him. George and Ringo are sitting there next to him. And I literally said to my parents, as the three of us were sitting around watching this, like, could you imagine being a music industry executive and hearing the piece, like j- just the idea of a song like that? Or there's a similar scene where like Paul is like hashing out Let It Be, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Sure. And just being like, there's gold in there like this is this is so iconic like this is going to be the future of music like could you even imagine i just i think i did but but can you put somebody that i used to love on that level i don't know no 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 no. but what i say is that like i feel like every time a a song becomes a hit the suits are like i knew it was gonna be a hit and it you're you're speaking in retrospect but also like having passport to music i remember hearing so many songs that i was like that's a fucking hit and that song went nowhere and so it's like it's so easy to like say in retrospect that you you it's like boy who cried wolf yeah like, it, it is it's gonna be a hit it's gonna, it's gonna be, be a hit. hit it's gonna be actually and it, i think she's saying that these folks after the fact were saying like we knew this was gonna be a hit and she's like they had no fucking what? clue they had no fucking clue <laughs> it's like yeah. my, my family is you know commentary in real time watching this film of just like could you imagine Hearing this, trying to ignore it, you know, as as is happening, like in the same room where you're standing, but also being like, especially with all of like the crap they were rehearsing at the time, like, and just being like, just like a a verse of "Let It Be," and being like, like you would just be knocked on your ass. Like, uh, you think you would be? I, I, I mean, I could also see people who are so used to what was happening at the time musically hearing that and being like, eh, it's different. We'll see. You know, like it's literally a one four five chord change. Like it's it is yeah. simple. Is that and then it? afterward, they're like, "Knew it was going to be a hit." It's like shit. Yeah. You didn't say anything when you were in the studio. <laughs> you dickhead. I don't know. It's an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> I guarantee you, nobody working Gautier early on thought that this would be as big of a hit as it became. No way in hell. There's no way in hell. Absolutely. She she shares some really cool stuff about that and how it like influenced her to be more experimental with her music because she was like we got weird with it and it was a hit so why would i just do things the way people always what do, do you two think is weird about this song i think it's that they weren't trying to make a pop song like yeah a, they were. like a top 40 pop song the construction's so off that to me that's what it is that hook is happens. pop songwriting one-on-one 100 100 but it doesn't come in until what two minutes 230 into it like 
the the but this is YouTube. You can isolate that and just circulate the hook around like it. I, but I think what she was saying is that, like, she wasn't they were in her bedroom recording this. They're just making this song that he'd been tinkering around with in his barn and just like kind of throwing the kitchen sink at and didn't adhere to any sort of like pop formulas uh, consciously. And it worked. So then after that, she was like, I'll just kind of do whatever I want and see what happens. I think is where she was going. I mean, I the recording solo in a barn thing literally was already four years passe at that point. <laughs> because Bon Iver recorded for Emma in two, well, it came yeah. out in 2008. And so he recorded presumably in 2007. And like, so there were some accusations of this song in, in music press uh, of it sounding derivative of Bon Iver, which I could totally get. I, I get it. It's like kind of sparse guitar and it's like kind of quiet. And then the chorus is like this big soaring kind of thing. Like, I get it. I totally understand. Especially at that time when Bon Iver like broke music. Meanwhile, Dave Bakula, who uh, worked at Nielsen at the time in that same NPR piece, said that he thinks the slow build of the song's success is really what led it to its long life. So like there are fans of Gautier from his previous albums or internet seekers who stumbled upon the video, where there would have been plenty of time develop, to develop a personal relationship with the song and the artist before it hit the radio. And then it just becomes inescapable. It's like the, by the time that it hits the radio, it's like, this is just like a runaway train. Also a guy who works at Nielsen. So take it with a grain of salt. But there's all these different perspectives. End of the day, nobody. it seems like nobody actually knows how this happened, which is kind of great. Yeah. I mean, is this one of the first instances of a music video being widely shared on YouTube? I think OK Go was probably the first one. This has to be one of the first ones that resulted in it being a. Because I do feel like in the late 90s, early 2000s songs that we've spoken about, we've talked about how the video can be very instrumental because at the time you had TRL, you had MTV. But as we get into mm-hmm. the later 2000s, you're, that's, that's certainly dying off. And I do feel there's maybe a little glut there mm-hmm. where the artists that recognize that YouTube and digital videos were taking off, the ones that capitalized on that, like OK Go, and, and even, what, two years later, like Macklemore, decided that, like, I'm going to go after video first mm-hmm. and let radio follow. I think in 2011, right. 2012, mm-hmm. that was still a new phenomenon. I think there was a, a, a bit of a four-year glut in videos. And so the fact that Gautier put this video out the same time put the song out was, was pretty smart and revolutionary at the time. Yeah, I kind of feel like in college, in the late 2000s, I don't know what the video looked like for a lot of my favorite songs. No. Like, just didn't see it. No. Because I wasn't, I didn't watch much TV in college and YouTube came around like halfway through my time in college. But I also think that like MTV at that time was all reality TV and and YouTube hadn't taken off yet. So it was this weird little in-between moment where you could watch Road Rules and Bam Margera or you would go online and look at pictures on Ebon's world, but you weren't watching YouTube videos yet. I was like, just waiting for the Homestar Runner reference uh, to happen oh, yeah, on this podcast. Coming. Yeah, we had to complete it. Another point that that uh, that same NPR article, which uh, was written by Jacob Gans, the, a point that it made was that 
we were just also getting into the age of singular pop songs where music tastes were getting so splintered because of the internet where people are like, oh, I listen to this, I listen to this, I listen to this. Like pop, as I said, like was no longer like a survey of what's popular. It was like, oh, this is music that people who listen to pop radio listen to instead of like we're pulling from all these different things was that these songs would gain momentum and then there'd be nothing else to challenge them. Like songs that became huge somewhat organically and then huge in the pop world had so much more momentum than songs that were just major label pop songs that were just being put onto the radio. So they had so much more like gravitas behind them where you couldn't take them down. And he said he thinks of it as the cash for gold theory where you've got so few reliable, genuine hits that the ones that rise to the top just stay. And you just can't destruct them. And he said, this is one of those songs. There's a lot to unpack here. It's interesting to like look back, I guess, and point to this song. It's like a turning point. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but... I, I kind of feel like it's a Goldilocks theory. Now who's a psychologist? Like, Go on. It reached this like massive level of being completely everywhere. And it was like pop music starting to turn into like mostly EDM at the time. But then there's also this like folky stuff, like we said before, of like Mumford and Sons and whatnot. And this song just comes in at like the perfect time. And also had all of this kind of organic following behind it before it had even hit the radio. So it's like any other song that's released on the radio that's like, oh, we got the new song from Katy Perry. We got the new song from who Justin Bieber, whoever was popular. This song's coming in and it already has this huge following behind it. And people who are sharing it and they're like, oh my God, like it's on the radio. Like that's what I think they're getting at. And I kind of what I think was happening here with a song like this. I think without one or the other, it wouldn't happen. Yeah, it is interesting. You had this like weird intersection of, of course, like the Katy Perry's and Rihanna's were at that level in the early 2000s. But you're right. You had like, the Mumford, Lumineer, whatever thing happening at the same time that like Skrillex and Pretty Lights were happening as well. It's a very, very weird time in pop music. And maybe because like with the rise of the internet and with the rise of streaming, you could have pop be so many different things. Whereas like quote unquote pop radio music, it's not going to play Skrillex behind Gautier, behind Rihanna. But those things were popular all at the same time. I think that's why I disengaged or why I have nothing interesting to say here is because I completely disengaged from every single band that you just mentioned, Theo. I was I get not interested in any of that music at that time. And so I chose to seek out what I did enjoy mm-hmm. that was contemporary, but also use that time to sort of bolster my knowledge of music history shall we say whether that was classic Mm -hmm. rock or you know uh folk revival or the you know the folk musicians that and and protest songs and Mm -hmm. union labor songs that influenced the folk revival at that time so i was like this is trash like this is really boring and i am not interested in it and like all pop music it's going to make a big splash and then it's gonna fade away 
Yeah. And I, I think that's further proving the point that things were splintering so much. We're like, you don't have to engage with pop music. Like, I've been like that for a long time where like there are certain things I know for certain reasons and certain things I like that come up from time to time in pop or end up in pop music eventually. But you no longer have to engage with pop music if you don't want to. The only thing I can think of recently is Old Town Road that that is an actual sensation. And uh, I'll actually reference that in a little bit. Yeah. I love how you keep being like, eventually I'm going to get to this point. I mean, like, yeah, fucking burn them in that oil with this episode. It's, it's been a slow, it's been a slow build. Like the song like the itself, song. it's been yes. a slow build up to the, the heart well, I of the conversation. I promise I don't have that much It's a fucking earworm. At the end of the day, it's a fucking earworm. That's what it is. That word is on my list of words that we do not use in music journalism because it is a bad word. And we don't consider ourselves music journalists. (laughs) All of our songs are earworms. (laughs) I've been trying really hard to, like, you know, uh, adhere to the theory if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But I also realize that that's not good for podcasts. Do it. So I've been trying to be very restrained and like very thoughtful in my commentary and honestly i don't think so it's, I, if you're listening wally if you're listening hillary hates your song <laughs> it's not that i hate his song that's the thing i think that the song has a massive brilliant hook and mm-hmm. and that that should be celebrated but also as an editor i'm seeing how our conversation is splintered off into the very you know stereotypical debate of art versus commerce and so we'll get really Uh deep into talking about the song structure itself of this massive hit single and then we'll sort of pivot very quickly into like the 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 cultural perspective and analysis and Uh and these are related obviously that's why we work in this field but they're also very different things but specifically in this when a song is at this point where we're talking about it on this podcast, they're like so, uh, so intertwined. Uh, and it's funny because I actually feel like Gautier like didn't really want to be that involved in the commerce part of it, which is funny. <laughs> like he just like made a song, went with it, made some friends, went to business with them, made a cool video, whatever. And like, He's barely made any music since as Gautier since this came out. Really? <laughs> so it, yeah. So it's like it's kind of funny because it's like he almost like wasn't even participating that much. <laughs> that's really interesting and also a very calculated business decision and artistic that's, decision. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Then yeah. I I mean I think maybe perhaps his mysterious quality played into it too. I mean, how very Led Zeppelin. <laughs> of of him yeah. like yeah, yeah yeah just tell uh, your management um, we're not doing press like and then just yeah. like release an album release a music video depending on your decade and then just have people you know engage with it appreciate it we're not well folks after a while this song had severely diminishing returns <laughs> the song and video were so ubiquitous and pervasive that the song was starting to make people a little crazy. That's how I felt. Wally himself says, uh, he said, I perceived a pretty strong backlash. People were saying, 
This song is plastered everywhere. I can't go to a mall without hearing it. Whether I hate it or I like it, I don't want to hear it anymore. It was an interesting... It's ex- a cold song. It's a cold song. Oh, yeah. You listen, cold Hillary, song. you listened to that episode, right? With Amy? Where she was talking about definitely cold, cold jam. <laughs> he said that it was an interesting experience to feel like, wow, it's got such an addictive quality and has crossed such unusual borders that it's now just out of my hands. And then he said, I don't know. Maybe they should play it less. <laughs> And then he said he was walking around Coachella when they played, hearing from multiple stages dance remixes of his own song, which he he thought were all terrible. And he said that was the moment where he was like, I've got a crazy hit and like, there's nothing I can do. Like, it's like my creative control is gone. Everything is gone. People are getting sick of it. There's nothing I can do about it. To some (laughs) degree, though, is that not how most musicians feel when they finish a song, release an an album, put it, you know, into the world, whether it's on Bandcamp or to, you know, Triple J and and Triple A radio, you know, like it's out of your hands. That's the that's the deep, dark fuckery of it and also the joy of it i'm gonna rename the podcast deep dark fuckery because that is fantastic <laughs> you know dark i'm a writer um and while he said there's a feeling that it wasn't me who was shoving the song in everyone's face it was the rest of the world and i was like it's okay you don't have to play my song so much play some other songs i'd like to listen to different music and he'd show up at commu- commercial music stations and they'd say the stars arrived and he'd say, please play some other music. <laughs> wow. I like uh, how, how like transparent he is about all this. Yeah, he seems like a cool guy. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, I mean, since you mentioned Amy's episode on uh, Achy Breaky Heart, like talk, I was listening to that earlier today. And, you know, if uh billy ray cyrus is going to record 15 different versions yeah, the complete opposite <laughs> yeah it's the complete yeah. opposite it's yeah you know we love to see that sort of generosity in the music industry first we have the song that is ubiquitous it's everywhere people are getting sick of it and then it was tons of covers of the song including the band walk off the earth uh, they're like a folk group that I think mostly does covers, but they made a YouTube video where they play one acoustic guitar and they're playing the lick and they pass it around yeah. the whole group. That absolutely viral video is a cover of this song. That video itself has 20 million views on YouTube and that's a cover. Then it was on Glee. Then it was on American Idol where Philip mm. Phillips sang it. Uh, and then it was on um, The Voice, and Adam Levine sang it with one of his like protégés on that show. And we'll talk about a few more covers in a second. But then there's all these parody songs. Yeah, Wally made so much fucking money off this song. <laughs> Good for him. Lone songwriter, yeah. Uh, Wait, I read that uh, so, Three Days Grace also covered this song. They did. They <laughs> Sorry, did. who yep, remembers yep. that band? Wow. Three Days Grace, Rita Ora, Mayday Parade, Pentatonix, Pomplamoose, Echo Smith, uh, Weird Al included it in his That's What I Call Polka medley. Bless. Uh, and then this year, it was interpolated into Justin Bieber's Hold On. And really? Wally does get a songwriting credit from the Beatles. 
Cooper. Cooper. Him. So. <laughs> yep. Yep. So that's happening. But then all these parodies happen and parody videos of the music video. And it kind of became a joke. The song was a joke for everybody online because they kept just making new versions of the song. And the most popular one is some study that I used to make. And it was on College Humor and featured a pre-SNL Kyle Rooney and comedian Beth Dover, uh, where they're being painted with math and science equation symbols and singing about all the things they can't remember from class and that they won't use in real life. Looking it up. Wow. The second... The second most popular one was the Star Wars that I used to know. I vaguely remember that, actually. <laughs> then there was Obama that I used to know, some QB that I used to know about the Mannings, and somebody who used to be my bro. Everything I mentioned has over a million plays on YouTube. Oh, I mean, some wow. study has 10 million. Uh... I feel like yeah. the Manning brothers should use that as their theme song for their new like Monday night football yes. sideshow thing that they yes. do. Anything except Hank Jr. <laughs> After all this, Wally said, I don't really feel like the song belongs to me anymore. Sometimes I feel like I'm a bit sick of it. My inbox on any given day has at least five covers or parodies or remixes of it. And there's only so many times I can listen to this song. Uh, he's... Uh, he's he's also turned down <laughs> many lucrative offers to use his music in commercial enterprises, but he just lets students use it for free <laughs> in, in their art. Yeah, I do. I do love this guy. Right? Although, yeah, like, yo, you're probably not going to have another hit, so fucking cash this shit in. It'll be a Cadillac commercial in four, five years, let's be honest. It ended up selling 13 million copies globally. The re- single or re- the LP? The single. Uh, it reached number one in the U.S., U.K., Australia, and 23 other countries. It hit When it hit number one on the U.S. chart, here are the songs that were behind it in the top ten. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. This is a lot of people's favorite parts. We Are Young, Fun, featuring Janelle Monet, which was another song that kind of followed this formula a little bit. Yeah, very similar mm-hmm. song, honestly. Boyfriend by Justin Bieber. Uh, Glad You Came by The Wanted. I don't remember that song. That feels familiar, actually. Uh, Stronger by Kelly Clarkson. Great song. Uh, Starships by Nicki Minaj. Wild Ones by Florida featuring Sia. Part of Me by Katy Perry. What Makes You Beautiful by One Direction. And then the song that eight weeks later would knock Gautier and Kimbra from the top spot. Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe. Oh, we will see Another you juggernaut hit that couldn't be stopped. Gautier, nine, eight weeks, number one? Eight. That's fucking wild. It's crazy. It was the longest running number one song since Flow Ride is Low in 2008. Yeah. Which is a great song. It was also the first Australian song to top the U.S. Hot 100 since Savage Garden's I Knew I Loved You. This is not bad know place. Savage Garden was Australian. I thought they are from Boston. Yeah, Boston. Bo- Australia. They're from Australia. I don't know. They feel like a Northeastern band. Interestingly, for a number one pop hit, it also topped the alternative rock songs chart, which is pretty remarkable for its era. And it was there for 12 weeks. What was it up against there? Uh, I don't know, actually, but it tied for the most weeks at number one with Fuel's Hemorrhage, Central PA. That's a great song. Great song. Banger. 
and two Linkin Park songs that had done the same thing. All bangers. Did I find my Linkin Park skate shoes at my parents' house somewhat recently? Those Those have got to be worth a lot of money. Oh my god. This is this is the biggest reveal ever on the podcast. Oh, I'm here for this. I got I got my screenshot. I got Shift Command three ready to go for these Lincoln Park skate shoes. Oh, oh my fuck. god! <laughs> Holy Those are kind shit! Of rad. Right? Should I bust? Should I wear them again? I think you should. Yo, it's like clean them up. Wear them. Again. I think you should check eBay. I bet they'd be rocking worth bills uh, right I now. I actually uh, wrote a piece for Paste about like was Lincoln Park ever good? Um, after Chester died and I was like really sort of like trying to transport myself back to that place and be like, because, because I mean, he died around the same time that Chris Cornell died. Mm -hmm. That wasn't that long after Scott from Frightened Rabbit died. And it was just, it was like a lot at once. And it was all about like, Hey, let's talk about mental health. Like, please. Mm -hmm. Um, their songs were talking about it. Right. And I think that anyway, that's very not Go-T-X, somebody that you used That's to okay. know, but like, um, I think he'd appreciate it. Wally would appreciate it, but I, but also like maybe it is all in the same vein. It's it's something uh-huh. that you had mentioned earlier, Theo, of like maybe that's why this song really hit a nerve with people is that it it brought out that sort of like emotional vulnerability that maybe isn't uh-huh. always in a lot of pop music. I think I think vocally and lyrically it feels a lot more real than anything else that I mentioned on that top 10. And it was on a large scale. So I feel like that is probably true. Uh, And there probably are people that were like, man, I've been there. Oh my God. And then the other person has their perspective. Like that's, that's cool. That's, that's some real shit. Uh, I feel like uh, I'm totally vacillating though of like between maybe there's something deeper here. Like as, as like, just like the, you know, the mush, the sentimental, the earnest uh-huh. music lover, and like then the hardened like music industry skeptic yeah. of just like it's a fucking pop song, y'all. Like that's the beauty of I think what we're trying to do here, and also the maybe the beauty of this song in particular. It's kind of both. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's the tenth longest charting song in Hot One Hundred history with fifty-nine weeks on the chart. It's the fourth all-time best-selling digital single so wait, in U.S. history. This song was that big. Damn. It's, and also it went platinum 14 times, only tied by Lil Nas X, Old Town Road. Okay. Uh, as Hillary already mentioned, it has almost 2 billion views on YouTube. It has over 1 billion plays on Spotify, which wasn't even widely available yet when it came out. Uh, not only was it on Glee, American Idol, and The Voice, but Gautier and Kembra also performed it on SNL. Uh, and Theo, you're going to be psyched. It was on Kids Bop. Oh, shit. We've got a Kids Corner. How do they break it down? Or they, they don't break it. It's the same song. I think this kid's singing the song. A lot of kids. Not for it. Kids Bop fucking 22. Kids Bop 22. Jesus Christ. Kids singing You Treat Me Like a Stranger and Treat Me So Rough is just... That's creepy. Strange. Y'all ever watched uh, 
Amityville Horror, the great horror film. They have like little kids singing in the background. Is that the, the cre- yeah. creepy music? There is, there is the not enough frosted sugar right cookie beer in the world for me to be able to good? cope with Delicious. small children singing <laughs> about heartache. That is, that is, too, no, that's, uh, that is bad. Uh, for those that can't see, uh, Hillary is drinking a frosted sugar cookie beer, uh, which is why that comment came up. Well, we've gone on this journey together with these two, and I feel like they're they're almost personal friends of ours now, and I want to know what they're up to. So uh, Hillary is wincing. Wally really doesn't want to do this again, <laughs> as you could probably hear earlier. Yeah. You know what? Fair, my friend. He doesn't really want to make anything like it. Uh, he seems like a pretty, pretty chill dude. I would like to hear the post-punk band. Oh, the basic? I will. I, I will. think in my personal and professional opinions that he should go back to that. Post-punk is having a, a I don't want to say revival because that's a very cliche word, but um, have y'all listened to dry cleaning? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. It's hey. on its like hey. fifth record. One of my favorite bands on the planet is Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever. And I mean, I, I, I love what they're doing. I love I love uh, Kiwi Jr. is fantastic. Like, I love what's happening in that. Gautier scene. should just like do his not Gautier thing and add a fucking backbeat, man. Here's the thing, though. The number one song from The Basics with 800,000 plays on Spotify is somebody that I used to know. <laughs> I would like to hear that. They are still playing, and Gautier is not anymore, really. So that's what he's been focusing on. Uh, he's been focusing on the basics and collaborating with electronic artists like Bibio, who I think is pretty great, and Jean-Jacques Perret. Um, he funds many of these projects via royalties from YouTube, which, which originally he refused to pursue and whenever they started doing pre-roll ads before music, he refused to have ads before his music because he thought it was wrong. Now mm. it's in front of all music, so he went for it. Uh, and t- he said, times have changed, and I'm using it to uh, not only uh, fund my other music projects, but also to try to make a difference in the world, which I'll get to in a second. Um, That's a Right? Uh, Kimbra has moved on as well. And because, as I said earlier, she and Wally set out to make an unconventional pop song uh, and it worked. She has wanted her music to be unconventional and uh, she has a lot of great music out there. I've listened to a ton of it. It's very cool. She mixes in all types of genre like jazz and R&B and electronic. Uh, She released her second album, Golden Echo, in 2014 and her third album, Primal Heart, in 2018 and performed on multiple late night shows, toured the world, all the while collaborating with Snoop Dogg, Thundercat. Matt Bellamy of Muse, John Legend, Foster the People, Beal All, and tons more. Um, she's also acting now. She's appearing in award-winning musicals, plays, and other films in New Zealand. Which uh, musicals? Uh, I wasn't familiar with any of them. I think they're all Kiwi productions, so I wasn't uh, too familiar with them. Uh, fun fact, her manager is Ben Weinman who is the founding guitarist of the metalcore band, the Dillinger Escape Plan. That is a fun fact. Uh, Didn't see that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So in 2014, Wally took a creative detour. So that's like three years after this. They were done touring. 
the song had run its course. They won their Grammys, you know, what have you. He uh, went to Northeast Arnhem Land in Australia, uh, which is largely an uh, Aboriginal region. And he met with Jalu Gurawiwi, who is an Aboriginal uh, Yongu elder and didgeridoo player, custodian and craftsman. Um, and he, uh, Jalu wants his music to carry on and reach new and wider audiences. Ah. So uh, Wally went there with a filmmaker and they um, performed together, wrote music together, uh, and they made a documentary about it. Which is uh, called? Uh, the documentary is called West Wind, Jalu's Legacy. Uh, and it, screened, it was screened at many film festivals and you can find it online. This long gap in Gautier's music has now created a meme where people are saying he's somebody that they used to know. Uh, and people are also saying, where's Wally? And Gautier fans know. want more Gautier music. Well, God damn it. Like a lot of songs we cover. I loved it at first. Then I fucking hated the song. And now after hearing about it and hearing how great he is, I'm, I'm like fully on board. And now I love the song again. So Wally all the way. Uh, I definitely gained some respect for, for Gautier. Uh, yeah, I feel like it was, it was kind of an accidental thing, uh, and he's doing some cool shit with the After Effects. I feel like we got more into the art versus commerce conversation in this than we ever have, and I loved it. I thought it was great because we touch on it on almost every episode, especially with artists who were put really putting their art first, yeah. and, and it just kind of happened, or after the fact, you know, wanted to keep things interesting but i feel like this song's kind of the perfect song to discuss in that within that yeah well and you know i think that's one of the things that's like so strange and sometimes wonderful about this fakakta industry in which we work is that you can do something seemingly in this case under the auspices of 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 pure art it becomes something so commercially successful. And then those original creators are able to take the returns and the financial returns and pursue other means of expression that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to do. And I sort of think, despite all of my snarkiness and cynicism... Which is welcome here. Isn't that the point? Like, isn't isn't that why we do what we do? Um to be able to make something out of nothing and hope it resonates with someone else. Like that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. And, you know, talk, trying to take some of these songs we think are just, uh, stupid or hokey or came out of nowhere or whatever, and try to build some different conversations around them. And I feel like Gautier made it kind of easy for us. Fuck yeah. Did you? Cause I felt like it was pretty hard. This is our third <laughs> Google hangout room to get to something this was great no it was uh hillary thanks for hanging for a long time with us Uh, truly an honor and a pleasure my friends hillary uh is there anything going on in your world that you want to tell the people after they've heard all about gautier this was such a journey of an episode how do i how do i rein this back in um no i mean i just think that um I feel like I touched on this in a couple other ways. Um, we can shit talk things, you know, until the end of time. We live in bad times. 
Um, but one of the reasons why, you know, I, I'm still here and I think you are too, Mike, is that we well, love music this deep in the podcast, so but. much. Um, so each issue of No Depression is themed and the current issue is called Good News because we have endured some very, very hard times. We have, we have gone through some shit as human beings on this earth, on the spinning rock in space, as I like to say. Um, and I, I just thought that we needed an entire issue of like things that don't suck. So, um, if you, if you dig music, if you dig our earnest and sardonic, but ultimately delightful conversations, um, I think you should probably subscribe to No Depression because there's a lot of that and you would be supporting independent music journalism, but also, um, many independent musicians. And, you know, if, if that's not what we're doing, then, you know, what, well said, what is the point? I like that. Well, I'll uh, I'll see when I get this edited in 2023. <laughs> and, uh, otherwise, yeah, it's fun. Hillary, let's hang in New York. Let's do it up. Yeah, make friends so that when I get there, it's just like you guys are just around. We'll have Brilliant. inside jokes before you even get there. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Good luck getting that song out of your head. Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review only if it's nice follow us on twitter at ywahpod and let us know what you think or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at ywahpod at gmail.com and lastly share with a friend if you had a good time this podcast was researched produced recorded and edited by me and theo bible and our theme music is by air doctor we'll see you next time